Hi, this is John in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm starting my two-hour drive to LaGuardia to pick up my long-distance boyfriend, flying in from Houston for his first visit to the city. This podcast was recorded at... 12.09 p.m. on Friday, February 10th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, but I'll still be taking him out to restaurants and teaching him how to pronounce Pashunk, Skookle, and Conshohocken. Okay, enjoy the show. I thought this was going to be Super Bowl related. I did too. I'm not sure that his boyfriend is understands what he's about to get into in Philadelphia the weekend of the Super Bowl, but good luck to you both. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. And NPR China correspondent John Ruich is here. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. The Biden administration has started to share what it is learning from the debris of the Chinese surveillance balloon shot down a week ago off the South Carolina coast. Sue, members of Congress were given a classified briefing this week. So what do we know now? You know, what's so fascinating about this interaction is that Oftentimes, administrations keep things under wraps, and they've actually been quite forthcoming. They declassified a ton of information to the public, even ahead of these briefings on the Hill. They disclosed a lot of what they know about the Chinese balloon. They disclosed, for instance, that the balloon was capable of intelligence collection and geolocating. They disclosed uh, the size and scape of it, even the design of it. They disclosed that it had an antenna and solar panels. They also disclosed that the company uh, that built the balloon has links to the Chinese military. Very squarely putting the blame on China and saying, we know it was them. They, we know it was an intelligence operation. We know it wasn't a weather balloon. Exactly. They also, uh, a number of Pentagon officials testified in public before the Senate this week. And, you know, there's a lot of anger on Capitol Hill about this, and we can talk more about that. But there was also a lot of questioning in public of Pentagon officials about why it took them so long to shoot it down. Also, obviously, a big topic of lawmakers in their classified briefings as well. What the Pentagon officials said, and this did seem to mollify some Republicans, is that they detected the balloon over Alaska on January 28th, and they were aware of its movements until it was shot down off the coast of South Carolina days later. But what they testified was that the risk of intelligence collection to the government seemed relatively low, but the risk of shooting it down over land that could potentially have people casualties below was higher. So they just made a risk calculation. And that did seem to mollify at least one Republican. Mitt Romney of Utah came out and said that he thought that the Biden administration had fulsomely answered that question. So, John, how is China dealing with all of this? China's reaction has been pretty interesting. They were a little flat-footed on this when the story broke last week. Uh, but early on, they expressed regret over this thing uh, floating, they said, unintentionally over U.S. airspace. You know, Secretary of State Blinken was planning to travel to China just days after that. And the interpretation of uh, many who watch China is that this was sort of an attempt to keep that keep that trip uh, on the books. It was since postponed. And since then, China's messaging has been a bit colder. It's been very disciplined. You know, the foreign ministry daily briefings, which are pretty much the only opportunity that foreign reporters have to ask any Chinese government official about anything, uh, you know, it's come up day after day and their, their reaction, their response response has been like a recording. You know, it was an unintentional entry into U.S. airspace by a civilian airship for reasons that we couldn't control. The U.S. has overreacted. They've declined to comment on questions about what the balloon's equipment was all about and what its capabilities were. 
And despite, you could say, being caught red-handed, as it were, you know, they have kind of stayed true to form and not missed any opportunities to spice things up. The spokeswoman this week, Mao Ning, implied that the U.S. is, in fact, the world's biggest offender in terms of surveillance and spying. She also said U.S. politicians are just trying to score political points by dramatizing the whole thing. Well, so it sounds like it was actually, we regret that you're upset about our balloon (laughs) and not we regret the balloon. Uh, there was a we regret the the regret was this we had no control you know how the wind works we had no control over the wind this thing <laughs> blew over your country so don't worry about it but to be clear one thing that the U.S. officials have been saying this week is this is not the first balloon ever not the first balloon ever and not isolated to the U.S. Uh, another key detail of uh, the declassification documents is they say that this is part of a more uh, global Chinese effort of surveillance. They said it was part of an effort to surveil 40 countries over five continents. Uh, The methods of those surveillance still not entirely clear, but clearly not one balloon caught in the wrong wind gust. (laughs) Although good spin on their part. (laughs) And China, by the way, for their part, they've been asked about this quote unquote fleet of balloons that's been flying over 40 countries. Ah. And the response from the foreign ministry spokeswoman this week has been, I know nothing about it. Um, So can we talk about domestic politics here, uh, Sue? Earlier this week, there was a very clear divide between Democrats and Republicans, with Republicans saying it should have been shot down sooner. What do the politics of the balloon look like at the end of the week? It's complicated because I do think that there are still some substantial criticisms of the president and the administration for not acting sooner. Even, you know, some Democrats, Brian Schatz of Hawaii, also kind of raised the question of maybe it it isn't such a bad thing to take things down as soon as they enter our airspace. Like a more aggressive posture on these things could behoove the U.S., you know, national security. There's also home state politics. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, John Tester, a Democrat from Montana, also were very angry. But I think the balloon was floating over their states over the course of this week. And I think they want to look strong to their own constituents to say, like, I don't support letting Chinese surveillance balloons hang out over our state. So there's also this sort of small domestic local politics of this. But broadly, the politics towards China are actually an area where there's a tremendous amount of bipartisan, at least support for action and more aggressive postures. Uh, By the end of the week, the House had passed a resolution condemning China for the balloon. It passed unanimously through the House. A similar resolution is expected to go through the Senate and probably pass with similar overwhelming support. Um, The House has established a new select committee on China. There is a lot of alliance here in the U.S. taking a more forceful posture towards China, both in terms of military and national security, but also economic. And the problem is I don't think there's, as of right now, complete unanimity on what those answers and policy should be. But the support for uh, starting to take more aggressive action and more coherent aggressive action towards China, I think is, is pretty overwhelming in Washington right now. It might be the singular thing in Washington that has the most support. I just want to make a quick point based on what Sue said, that Bipartisanship on China is not lost on on the leadership in Beijing. You know, from the, there is a lot of mistrust and I guess cynicism on their part about where the U.S. is coming from. They see everything through the lens of this concept that the U.S. is trying to encircle China and trying to hobble its development. This week, the Pentagon announced new basing agreements in the Philippines, and the U.S. convinced Japan and the Netherlands to get on board with chip export controls. These types of things, it's, it's all part of the same story for them. So that's the lens through which they're seeing this balloon. 
And it's a huge issue now because, you know, China is emerging from three years of self-imposed COVID isolation that really hurt the economy. It eroded trust in the leadership. It scared off foreign investors. And for this year, Xi Jinping's big priority is going to be the economy. To do that, he needs stable relations. And there is some reporting that U.S. officials think Xi Jinping probably didn't even know about this balloon. He wanted Blinken to visit. In recent months, he's been signaling a willingness to warm ties with the U.S., with the West, and kind of put a floor under things so that he can get China back on its feet. But you're right. I mean, this now, it it's whiplash. It puts that whole project on pause. It sort of pushes things off course and creates chaos. It's hard to see Blinken rescheduling that trip anytime soon. Yeah. All right. Well, John Ruich, we'll be watching that. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Happy to do it. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a second. And we're back. And Hansi Lawang is with us. Hello, Hansi. Hey, Tam. You cover elections for us, and uh, you've got a very interesting story that you're bringing. You know, it's been 27 months since President Biden won the 2020 election, but that election continues to haunt local elections officials across the country. They are still dealing with election deniers alleging fraud without anything to back it up, including lawsuits, ongoing criticism from local residents during public meetings, the whole thing. Well, the story of how election deniers, election denialism, how that is affecting U.S. democracy is not over. These are deep systemic problems inside this country's political system right now. And, you know, the midterm elections are over, the votes have been certified, but these problems have not gone away. And you're seeing this playing out uh, probably most prominently in swing states like Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, and you have some reporting out of Pennsylvania. What did you find? Well, I, I focused in this Philadelphia suburb called Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and officials there have been dealing with multiple lawsuits alleging election fraud with no substantial evidence. And, you know, the thing is, the county can't just ignore these lawsuits. They still have to go through legal proceedings, do the paperwork, and all that uses up public officials' time, taxpayer dollars. And there was a recent county council meeting where local officials sat through another round of public comments from folks criticizing uh, officials for how they handled the election and bringing up allegations of election fraud without any evidence. And there was this really remarkable moment when the county solicitor, William Martin, hit a breaking point. I am profoundly offended to listen to baseless allegations of fraud against me and against other county workers. It's time to put up or shut up. If you think there is fraud, sue me. Sue me. Sue me personally. Because then when it gets thrown out, I'll sue you for abuse of process. Sue me. Mm. Hansi, one of the details in your story that I found really surprising is that some places are still doing recounts. Yes, and there was a, a recount, a hand recount that drew some national headlines. It was also in Pennsylvania. This is in central PA. Lycoming County had this controversial hand recount of 2020 results in January 2023. <laughs> this came after a lot of pressure from some local residents who just uh, did not believe that the results were accurate from November 2020, as as put out by Lycoming County election officials. There were allegations that those results were off by thousands of votes. But the results came out and the officials said that they found no significant difference between the recount 
and their original tallies from 2020. But the thing is, you know, a lot of local officials uh, are not expecting necessarily that the misinformation, uh, the campaigns from election deniers, that all that is going to go away. Are local election officials worried about what this means for the next election? I mean, two years after the 2020 presidential, they're still fighting it out. So what does that tell you about 2024? There are a lot of fears about 2024. There are fears about elections that are taking place this year, uh, some local elections. And, you know, right now things may have quieted down somewhat because we're in this kind of pause between major elections. But there's the potential for, again, more misinformation, maybe more lawsuits. And, you know, in Pennsylvania, this is really all tied up with how a state law started allowing all voters in the state to vote by mail in time for the 2020 election. And since then, there have been countless attacks on mail-in voting from prominent Republicans like former President Donald Trump and from Republican politicians in Pennsylvania, some of whom who once publicly supported voting by mail. And they've now turned it into this partisan flashpoint in the state that is really just drawing a lot of this misinformation and a lot of these allegations. This recount happened. The results came back. They were not substantively changed. There were not thousands of votes that were wrong. Does that satisfy election deniers? I mean, like, are they then going to say, well, now, now I'm satisfied and and we can move on and 2020 was totally fair? Well, it's hard to answer because I don't think there's really one spokesperson to really represent how all election deniers feel. But certainly, I think that election officials are preparing that that will not necessarily be the final word, if you will, that they are trying to gear up for what may be coming next. The potential here is that, you know, again, going back to mail-in voting in Pennsylvania, there are still uh, some unanswered questions about what is allowed, what is not allowed in Pennsylvania. There's some ongoing lawsuits. And with that legal uncertainty, that kind of leaves the door open for folks to raise questions, also to potentially spread misinformation. Is this unique to Pennsylvania? Or are you seeing this happening in other states, especially the states that were also sort of critical or called into question in 2020? I'm thinking about places like Arizona and Georgia. This is not necessarily unique to Pennsylvania. I think particularly if you take a look at swing states around the country, this seems to be a very common theme. But in general, election officials around the country um, are, are really burnt out in a lot of ways because in, in lots of different pockets around the country, you, you see this happening still uh, in different ways. And I think it really speaks to how this is in the water and to get it out of the water, if you will, is not going to be an overnight thing. But there are also bad actors out there who are taking advantage of this uncertainty and that won't necessarily stop in time for 2024. And Sue, as Hansi said, we're talking about swing states in many cases. And the definition of a swing state is that it could decide the presidential election. What's fascinating to me about a lot of this election denialism, too, is that from the political perspective, it wasn't actually very compelling in 2022, right? A lot of the the loudest and most vociferous election deniers lost and lost by a lot in a lot of these swing states. Uh, and a lot of people who were election deniers or fueled election denialism actually did concede their elections and didn't continue to fuel it. So it feels like it might be on the wane, hopefully. But 
If it doesn't actually affect the outcomes of elections, it's important to remember that, like Hansi's reporting, is that it creates and can create such an unbelievable bureaucratic headache for the administrative side of elections. Because like he's saying, like, you can't ignore a lawsuit that's filed over an election. If you have to do a recount, you have to do a recount. And the fact that in Pennsylvania, two years after the election, there are places that are still fighting out the election. It is it is a level of bureaucratic insanity, if not ultimately one that has so far dramatically affected election outcomes. Hansi, thank you so much for bringing your reporting to the podcast. You're very welcome. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, it is time for Can't Let It Go. The following message comes from NPR sponsor Sattva. Founder and CEO Ron Rudson says that a critical part of the Sattva experience is having a mattress that's made to order. When you order a mattress from us, your mattress has a birth date after you order it. And people love that. Think about it. Nothing sits in muggy warehouses. Nothing sits in muggy basements of stores. When you order it, you're getting your product made fresh for you, delivered to your room of choice. We take out all of your debris and take out your old mattress as well. We can bring in our mattress. We can bring in a foundation. We can. We also have adjustable bases. So we're the, we're the folks that kind of sell mattresses like you see in stores, except we operate in an e-commerce modern way. To learn more, go to SAATVA.com slash NPR. And we're back, and it's time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go, the part of the pod where we talk about the things that we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise, and we have brought in our ringer, Miles Parks. Happy to be here. You know, just on a Friday, there's nothing I like doing more than just like thinking of weird, funny stuff and talking about it with you guys. Oh, can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to hear the weird, funny stuff. So I'm going to go first. Um, this is definitely funny. I don't know if it's weird. It's a little... Anyway, Um During the State of the Union address earlier this week, President Biden, in a particularly contentious moment with Republicans, um, like blurted out this line. As my football coach used to say, lots of luck in your senior year. (laughs) And I've heard him say it like once or twice before. It's a Bidenism. But like, what does it mean? I'm so glad you did this because I've like I saw your story. You wrote you wrote a story about this. And now it's all I can think about. And I've started like like today. I've had four different moments where I've just used it randomly, (laughs) where I'm just like, it kind of can mean anything you want it to, depending on which word you emphasize. It truly, it truly could. Best of luck in your senior year. In yours. So I went back into the archives of Biden, and he has been using it at least since the 1990s. Uh, And he uses it in a couple of different ways. One way is somebody telling him, lots of luck in your senior year. And other times he's like telling somebody else, lots of luck in your senior year. So uh, my favorite instance of this is a Senate floor speech where he is talking about meeting Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian, we'll call him a war criminal. He asked me what I thought of him. I told him then I thought he was a damn war criminal and should be tried as such. He looked at me like I said, lots of luck in your senior year. Did not phase him a bit. What I love about this story also is that I've now gotten a lot of feedback from listeners and, you know, people who read the story on the Internet. Um, And there are a lot of people who have said, oh, my God, how did you not get this? It is so obvious. (laughs) Joe Biden meant this. And they all say something different. I liked it because when he said it, it's one of those expressions, I agree with Miles, where it's like, I know what 
his intention was in that moment when he said it, but the words that he used, it's hard to like fully explain what that saying means. But sometimes I wonder if it's like a generational thing because my dad and Joe Biden are like roughly the same age and both from Pennsylvania. And my dad also says just lots of weird different sayings. And I wonder if like some of this stuff is just iterations of stuff that when they grew up that were things that they said that you can kind of use in any any situation. Do we? So he, but he goes back to this coach, right? Who yeah. he says said it to him, like my coach in, used like, to. Say right, yeah. exactly, not to be like the cynical like. Do we know the coach well, definitely exists? Like, does made... like I, I? Do we know who the coach is? Which coach it was? Has any coach stood up and been like, "Yeah, that's my saying. Well, I know where Joe got it." I will have you know, I reached out to the White House to ask which coach said it, and they did not get back to me with an answer mm. on that. I did also speak to someone the president went to high school with, uh, who played baseball with him. But Biden has said it was his football coach, mm-hmm. so. Um, anyway, that guy thinks he picked it up in college oh. or just made it up. But whatever it is. Or, yeah, who knows what team. Yeah, he probably played on a number of teams. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm just saying I would love to hear from the coach. If the coach wanted to come forward and say it was his thing, I'd be very interested in reading that profile. It's just an expression. <laughs> Miles, what can't you let go of? What I can't let go of is... I feel like it was pretty obvious what I was going to come here with. LeBron James. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I'm I feel like I'm NPR politics resident basketball fan. And this was a huge moment. It was also State of the Union night. Yeah. And I was at the Capitol uh, and got to watch it. It was just a very cool moment where I was Ubering home from the Capitol watching the LeBron James thing on my phone. So it was like a really special Tuesday night. And I really enjoyed it for LeBron as somebody who's like grown up. Are you watching. a LeBron super fan or are you just a super I fan am, of basketball? I am. Oh. That was honestly LeBron and I'm... I've never been a fan of his individual teams as much as him. He was just became great right at the same time that I started learning to love basketball. Oh, I thought and you were so, going to say right at the time I also became great. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so I've like I definitely am kind of a LeBron super fan. But the secondary part of this that I think is really fun about this story is so everyone was kind of looking at all the different footage. There's like there's like eight million cameras right in the in the stadium watching LeBron shoot the shot that gave him the scoring record. And one of the angles, which Shea Serrano, who's one of my favorite basketball and hip hop writers, he pointed this out. One of the angles from the back of the stadium, you see LeBron pulling up to shoot. Everyone in the stadium is so excited for this shot. Everyone knows he's going to shoot it. And then there's a guy on the Lakers on LeBron's team named Thomas Bryant, who I'm sure you guys have. Maybe never heard of, potentially. Never heard of yeah. him. Never heard of him, right? He's in the background of the shot with his hand up in the classic pass it to me. He's, like, <laughs> looking for LeBron to pass him the ball at this, like, key moment. And it's, like, I just respect the heck out of Thomas Bryant. Read the room. Well, you know, Thomas <laughs> Bryant. LeBron was probably thinking lots of luck in your senior year, buddy. I am not passing you that ball. And he didn't, and then went through the hoop. And I'm sure Thomas is very excited, though I will say, last part of that story, Thomas Bryant was traded this week uh, after that game from the Lakers. Well, the Lakers also lost that game. They did. They did. But that will be like Thomas Bryant's final moment as the Los Angeles Lakers, like waving, pick me, pick pick me. me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sue, what can't you let go of? The thing I can't let go of is this weekend, Super Bowl, the Eagles are in the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. And as longtime listeners of the podcast would know, I am originally from Philadelphia and nothing brings out my Philly more than a Philadelphia sports team uh, in the Super Bowl. And I just, I'm living my best Philly life right now. I already have ordered Tasty Cakes and soft pretzels are sitting in my house. <laughs> I have my no one likes us, we don't care shirt. <laughs> but part of what I can't let go of it is like how Philly is also preparing for the Super Bowl. There's been like some hilarious 
stories out of the city where one was uh, a jury duty last week, a judge in the jury duty system. When they call roll, you normally have to say here or present. But he also said at the front that he would accept Go Birds as an acceptable <laughs> uh, roll call. So, of course, everyone in Philly jury duty is responding, Go Birds, Go Birds, during jury duty. Uh, Pennsylvania schools have already announced a two-hour delay on Monday morning <laughs> the, to allow the hangover to Right. Uh, I also come from, um, you know, I, I come from a Philly maniacal sports family. So it's it's like really my brother's text chain and everyone's wearing matching shirts and like just having all of the fun and excitement around it. And I'm just super excited. Go birds is what I'm saying. You're not in dread mode. No, I think it's super fun. I think it's so fun. And the last time the Eagles won the Super Bowl five years ago, I met a couple of my brothers up in Philly for the Super Bowl parade. Oh, I, I think remember if they win, that. they might do it again. Brave the cold. It was a ridiculous experience. If you are uh, familiar at all of how Philadelphia sports fans celebrate, it's not that much different than how they riot. Well, that's what I was so, going to yeah. say. Is I feel like this is a classic Philly sports fan to be like, I'm just really excited to be here. Can't wait to watch the game. But then if they lose, I guarantee you multiple NPR trash cans will be on fire and it will be Kasuda. Davis, like, went on a rampage. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, I thought you said, we're going to say when they when you said that they were preparing for it, that they were just, like, greasing all the They're probably doing that as well. They're doing that as well. But I'm excited for the game, and I'm excited to uh, maybe let my kids push bedtime a little bit. Mm. It's a good reason to indoctrinate them into Philly sports themselves. So. Nice. Aww. Well, go birds, I guess. Go birds. Go birds. I guess that's the only right answer in this the room right now. Yeah, answer. yeah. I don't feel comfortable saying right. anything else. Go birds. <laughs> And that is a wrap for today. Our executive producer is Mathani Maturi. Our editor is Eric McDaniel. Our producers are Elena Moore and Casey Morell. Our research and fact-checking comes from intern Devin Speak. Thanks to Krishna Dev Kalamar, Brandon Carter, and Lexi Shapittle. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Miles Parks. I cover voting. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.